Uduwasha city, where the sun is a mirror and the moon a shadow. 800 years ago, the gates of death were broken by the Emperor Immortal. The five key bearers, however, had already unlocked them and walked right through. It is in Uduwasha city they dwell. Now, the ghost field breathes next to our reality, lit by the eternal flame of the well of Udu. It is a second skin, a place where thought and will struggle against gravity and light. In other places, the dead congregate in the ghost field, but in Uduwasha, the well city, the hell city, they fall straight into the flames. See its glittering districts, Chitichpur, where the rich plot to buy the horizon, Bundavest, where the refugees of two different nations flock, and Pasarhandu, the vertical maze of market and murder. And here is Udepat, where the ceaseless temple resides. Its inhabitants, a family, a snake, and a god. The temple has stood since before the gods of this world were forgotten. Watch as it turns the wheels of revolution. Welcome to Desperate Retune, an actual play podcast about people who take risks so they can survive against the odds. Hi, this is Samitri or Tree, and welcome to our world-building episode of A Candle Ablaze, our Blades in the Dark campaign set in Uduwasha, the capital city of Ayurveda. In this episode, we mostly talk about the ways that we came up with the world of Uduwasha that you see in our show, which both builds on but also deviates from the canon Uduwasha that exists in the special edition of Blades in the Dark. We talk about the inspirations that we've taken from our own lives and the fiction and themes that we're interested in. And we also talk about some of the things that we're interested in exploring during the show. This episode is a bit longer than our shows normally are and we meander more than we normally do but we feel that this gives you a more interesting and a broad view of the way that we went about thinking about the show. So I hope you enjoy. What is Uduwasha and what is Blades in the Dark? So our first campaign, A Candle Ablaze, is set in the world of the Shattered Isles, which is the default setting of the game we're playing, the Blades in the Dark. And Blades in the Dark is set in a city called Duskwall, which is kind of a Victorian London crossed with Venice, with several fantastical elements on top of them, including the fact that the sun is broken and the world is plunged into eternal night. Uh, the Shattered Isles are ruled by an immortal emperor who ha- apparently has broken the gates of death. Uh, because the gates of death have been broken, there is now something called the ghost field. And generally when people die, their ghosts emerge in the ghost field. And in Duskwall, uh, there's a very specific procedure of boiling people in Leviathan blood, refined Leviathan blood, to make sure that those ghosts don't haunt the city. And there is a general theme of um, a kind of industrialized mad science uh, versus an occult, you know, ghost and demon-laden world. 
so that is kind of the broad setting. The best question to get us rolling, which is, why did we pick Uduwasha, which is a different sit- city in the same setting compared to the base setting, which is Duskwall, which is something that everyone in this game is very familiar with, and I think uh, we've played in it a lot. We know it really well, um, but we decided we wanted to do something different. So why did we feel like Uduwasha was where we wanted to be for this campaign? Cloud, do you want to take this first? Yeah. Well, you and I have spoken about Uduwasha a fair few times in the past, um, ever since we met and started playing Blades together. Largely because... So Uduwasha is interesting because, as said from Duswell, it is the only other setting, only other city in the Shattered Isles setting. It has, like, official supplement of sorts. Not a full supplement, it's just got a small section at the end of the Blade Special Edition, which a lot of people have since had their hands on and looked through. Yeah, so this makes it, like, interesting because it's the other setting that has material on it, right? But you and I, and I think like a lot of people, like it's not just something that you and I just exclusively have a problem with because it's quite problematic in certain respects, really orientalist. And aside from just being fairly orientalist and a bit like lacking, I think, in it's lacking, I think, in imagination. And also it's very, very short. So it's quite frustrating in many respects. Like if you were to actually want to play a campaign in Uduasha, it's not that much the city itself feels feels fairly underbaked, especially if you're from South Asia, if, which is Uduasha um, is of course a city in the land of Uruvia, which is sort of based on this Orientalist milieu, right? India, Persia, Egypt. It's as if, as though those countries and lands are similar at all. Like if you're from, from if you're from any of these places in the real world, you know what like India. It's like I'm from Bangladesh, you're from India. So we know what South Asia is like. And it can feel like very frustratingly cardboard cutout version of it. In a certain respect, I suppose Duswell is a bit like that as well. Like it's a pastiche of Europe, pastiche of Europe with like European Victorian sensibilities. Still, I think like people bring a lot more to that setting. And I suppose what we wanted to do to kind of like bring our vision of Uduasha, kind of like reinvent it, kind of like taking the base elements that are still in the manual. So it's not like a radical reinvention of the city where like nothing's the same. Still take most of the core elements and then kind of like, what would we write for this city? What would we make it like? I think it's the answer. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of the kinds of things that uh, we enjoyed doing for world building for this campaign did end up being about oh what do we enjoy uh making this kind of like specific right soap i think as the third resident south asian in our game i wanted to ask you what do you think um uduasha seems like to you like what is the appeal of uduasha uh and playing in it uh to you feel like with the Uduasha that we've created, there is while what we the Uduasha that we created, like I'll just add on to what Chloe was saying is that uh, while uh, Dostfall in the original Blades is also a pastiche of Europe, it feels like a pastiche that 
was created with uh, an, an, an informed approach where the Uduasha that I saw in the supplement sort of just felt like 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 the kind of uh, vaguely Middle Eastern place you might find in any number of Hollywood films, right? And I think that the Uduasha that we've created is still a bit of a pastiche of different places. I think it's got bits of like... Uh, India has got bits of um, maybe like Pakistan, Afghanistan, that kind of thing. But it's an informed place. Like, uh, I mean, I'd be biased because I had a hand in creating it, but it feels like, like so far playing this game, it feels like a real place with, uh, with, with fantastic elements, of course, but it feels like a lived-in place, a place that has, it could grow organically once once you accept the premise that you know it's in this uh, magical fiery pit yeah fair. and i think that like there is something about the pastiche that we've created that is quite specific and this is something that uh prince and i was talking to justin ford on the fine blueprints podcast about which is that we one of the things that i think is a strength of our game is that we are actually much more specific than a lot of uh, other kinds of games uh, with our inspiration. And I think that's what also like gives the setting some texture. So what do we think? And I think uh, I want to ask Prince this because Prince, you've spent a lot of time doing a lot of the nitty gritty of the world building. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Like, what if we kept from the the setting itself and like why why do you think the things that we kept were interesting enough to be kept so i'm not actually that familiar with what what we kept in the original setting i will confess like i i have not read the uh, you know the the core canon uduasha stuff back to back but i know that we kept we kept the core conceit like this well of uh, of uh, fire in the center of the city, and also this general vibe that you know, Uduasha is not the city of electroplasm; it is the city of pyromancy. It is the city of fire and steam and stuff. And I think that's a very cool visual. It adds, it still uses this element that you mentioned of like you know, mad science versus the occult. But I feel like it leans more towards an occultish vibe. You know, fire uncontrollable. You have this great big mystic fire at the center of it all. So I think that is the the main thing we kept. A lot of the other stuff we have, uh, as far as I know, torn out and replaced. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I think, like the, the very core ideas we've kept, but not that much else, right? Yeah, I think the things that we've kept are, yeah, the the idea of the of the huge fire at the center of the city, and the fact that the ghost field in Uduasha is very different to the ghost field in Duskwolf, right? So... Oh yeah, that too. Yeah. I think that was actually that's quite that's something that was that ended up being quite uh, pivotal in the core book itself. That you yeah, know. it is, and and the idea there uh, is that the, the this burning well takes care of the ghost problem itself. It is you know there's a great big sort of sacrificial fire that consumes the essences of the dead. So you get you have like a natural anti-ghost thing in the city, a natural thing that soaks up all the excess ghost and spiritual energy, which makes the ghost feel a very different thing than it is in the default setting in Duskwall. Yeah, yeah. 
we're still exploring, I think, even in the game, exactly what that means for uh, for the way that, like, the magical forces in Uduasha feel, right? And I think, like, actually the, the character that we see kind of most do this is Emma's character, Joan, um, who is, who used to be, like, kind of on the front line, right, uh, of the fight against ghosts. So, Emma, do you want to tell us a little bit about, like, the... Not just your character specifically, but like the idea of the railjacks, how that fits into the setting of the of the world, and like how you how we're using that to contrast with the way that Uduasha is. So I think uh, a part of the conceit of the original world is that uh, at least some of the cities that are uh, prominent in the setting, such as uh, Duskwall itself, are surrounded by light a barrier of lightning towers, like. I imagine them like really big Tesla coils or something that have lightning sparking between them. And that's keeping the ghosts out so that it's like a kind of controllable, livable area. But outside of those, the ghost field is truly soaked in in the undead. So it would be a very dangerous place for the living to go. But still, people, what there is an empire, there is a need in general for communication and for travel between the cities which is for a large part achieved with these big train, uh, very long train uh, lines, train connections that, as far as I know, also cross the sea uh, from island to island. Now, of course, there is some need for these trains to be uh, to be secured, to be safeguarded so that the, the rails are not constantly flooded with ghosts which could create all sorts of problems for the trains and for the passengers so there is a profession of people who maintain the rails and clear them of ghosts and these people are called the railjacks they also travel on the trains catching ghosts that might be in the way or getting rid of ghosts that are trying to cling to the trains that is what uh, what what was meant i think when you say someone who is on the front line of this uh, undead menace that is threatening the world. Yeah, I think the, the, the kind of op- feeling of oppressive, well, maybe I shouldn't use the word oppressive because we're going to be using that word in a slightly different context. The feeling of all-pervasive dread, I think, is very present in in Joan's character and backstory. And it's actually the that same ever pervasive dread to some extent that we don't have in Uduasha in the same way. Uh, we have it in a very different way, right? Do you think that there is a the difference in texture which we are kind of like very aware of because we came up with it? Do you think that the the people inside the world are aware of it in the same way? Do you think that the characters not just that we play, but, you know, that inhabit Uduasha, uh, are, you know, aware of that, like, wild difference? Basically the difference of uh, of the ghost, in texture of the ghost field, or in general of just, like, the existence of ghosts outside the cities and inside, uh, and, and absence of them inside. I meant the latter, but now that you've asked it, I, may, I now mean both. Right, fair enough. Uh, I, I imagine that they must know about the the matter of ghosts 
I think that is mm-hmm. something that shows up all the time in 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 general, like the education that exists about the world, about the wider world. Even if you've never seen a ghost, uh, you're gonna learn or read about them or hear about them at some point. I imagine it shows up in news stories when ghosts have been have become particularly prevalent or problematic somewhere. So yeah, I think I imagine that they are that uh, especially the people in Uduwasha are at least academically aware of them or in concept. Um, and that this city is particularly and uniquely empty of the undead. In terms of the ghost field, though, I feel like that is something that you will only know if you've been exposed to the difference extensively. And if you're like particularly good at paying attention to it. I always like I, I always imagine it as if as if you enter the city of Uduasha and if you're particularly sensitive to the ghost field, you will feel as if there has been a fridge that has been buzzing the whole time. Now the sound has stopped. Oh, that's a really, really nice way to put it. Like, it's something that you only notice when it's turned off, when it's on and you're used to it. You're like, oh, this is normal. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I think in that case, uh, because that, that metaphor is so good, I'm, I'm very curious about like the, the ways that we built this world are actually we, we bounced off each other quite a lot, right? And in fact, now that you used this fridge analogy, I know that I'm going to use it uh, going forward, right? So I'm really like, I think it's super interesting to see how we kind of built this world in a way where one person comes up with an idea, maybe even fleshes it out, and then the, another person just takes that and runs with it. What do you think? What do we think that process kind of looks like? And I guess this is for everyone. I think this is one of the. This is to me one of the things that's really beautiful about role playing games: the fact that it is collaborative storytelling. It's something that I personally enjoy quite a lot. That I'm usually advocating for in games and stories. And I think good GMs of any role-playing game will do this already. They will sort of usually how this goes is it goes linearly from player to GM, right? The player goes, hi, here's my character's backstory, and then the GM weaves that into the game. But I think when you make it bi-directional, when you have this back and forth, where the player makes a backstory, then the GM weaves it into the game, then the player goes like, oh, cool, maybe this setting element is tied to this and that. Uh, you get, that's when it really sings, right? When you have this, when you're unafraid to go back and forth. And I think that's sort of what we have. So in a sense, what I'm saying is, I think every role-playing table already does this a little bit, and I'm just generally advocating doing it more. I think that makes sense. Um, Emma, I think like we had a moment in the, in the first episode, or even in session zero, when we were um, talking about Dutch as the, as the old language of Uduwasha, right? How did we kind of like come up with that, and how... How is that informing the way that we are thinking about Uduwasha going forward? Yeah. So so I think for my part, I still do largely approach Uduwasha from the lens of like trying to translate my um, experiences in Bangladesh growing up in Dhaka and so on, kind of like building a world, building a fantasy city 
that as the central launching point instead of like, I don't know, Victoria and London. I think for me, it's still like very much in that sort of South Asian space. However, the, um, even though, you know, I don't normally think about the idea of like uh, the old Udoasha language, um, Hadrati, being Dutch adjacent, like I still largely see that as like something we said, and it's a bit of a joke. It's it's a thing in the world, but like largely it's a bit of a joke. But like, I think it's still very important in a sort of like, um, cognitive sort of sense, by which I mean is that, okay, so now we are thinking about, um, we're thinking of Uduasha, we're thinking of Dhaka, we're thinking of Kolkata, we're thinking of places like that. But the old language is Dutch. And that I think like really does two things. One, it kind of like makes this world makes this world stranger. Kind of like upends mm-hmm. certain uh, fundamental like assumptions that you might have about it, which I think challenges the um, tendency to orientalize even amongst ourselves. And I think it also kind of like mm-hmm. reminds us something that I that I am like really really invested and fascinated by it's kind of like interconnectivity of the world how these sorts and how of how like the historical places that we think of as india or or england or well or or the netherlands in the real world these places are not like discrete locations that grew up by themselves and they had nothing to do with each other in the real world Mm -hmm. there's been tons of like interplay and constantly strange things that you can't like the word for bucket in Bengali comes from Portuguese, things like that. And I think like this sort of thing like appeals to me and also like gives us an opportunity to like um, make sure that there's always like the world that we're constantly building, there's no need to like fall into some sort of like pre-assumption. There's always like more that can be odd and that's historically justified as well insofar as that matters. I say I'll also add that like uh, Dutch in uh, this uh, fictional world is not necessarily Dutch, right? It, it doesn't have it doesn't have to come with the connotations of Dutch, the language Ireland, and really we're not using uh, just uh, actual Dutch. We're taking Dutch words and uh, kind of morphing them into something weird. So I'd, I think yeah, that does like lend a lot more to making the the world feel a bit more weird, a bit more dynamic that, you know, uh, I think as far as the characters in this world go, like you don't even know what, uh, yeah, it, it's called Udefut because that's what it's always been called and no one really even thinks of it as being uh, like from a different language. Right. Because I think, I think that is what it is like with uh, a lot of peop- uh, places in Dhaka anyway and it, it does sort of relate to my experience there because um, a lot of the places in Taika have names that are from uh, Persian, and no one thinks of it as, oh, that's what the name of this place was. It's just what it's always been called, and the reason why it's called that no longer applies. Right? Like, I live in a place called Gulshan, which I think means, like, uh, our garden, and if you've been to Gulshan, you know, <laughs> it's... Uh, um... Rose Garden. Rose Garden, yeah, it's a rose garden, yeah. If you've been to Gulshan, um, a very distinct lack of roses. And gardens, potentially? Yes, very distinct lack of both. And I, and I think this is actually fairly common across the world, right? Like, you suddenly find out that, like, I think I was reading something earlier today that Manchester comes from, like, Latin, meaning rises from the ground. It's, it's a hill that looks like 
uh, abreast, yes. right? You know, and now it's just Manchester. Nobody's gonna remember that's where the word came from, but everybody knows that that's what it's called, right? Yeah, I think this is. It's also good because in a lot of, if you do like very lazy world, I I shouldn't maybe I shouldn't call it lazy. Let me let me do over that. In a lot of world building. Uh, people will use things like pig Latin. They will use whatever is close at hand, you know, like pig Latin to sound like mysterious and occult. You'll say Latin-y sounding things. And I think there was a temptation here to just reach for Sanskrit. It's right there and to have yeah. it be Sanskrit. But we are making this a world of our own and we want to remi- remind both ourselves and our listeners to not, as, as you said, to not like overly orientalize or overly simplify this world. So we're introducing these these quirks of our own. And then I think it's funny to go for a, you know, a language that is spoken today as opposed to a dead language as our dead language of the setting, kind of, to just twist it yeah. up. I want to know what our Dutch speaker thinks of this. <laughs> I think uh, I was about to say a lot of things that have been said. Uh, in, uh, I feel like it, it has a tension currently, the, the, the use of these two, uh, kind of, or of Dutch as a language that is very different from the languages that are in the present day of Uduashia, supposed to be spoken. I feel like it has a similar tension to uh, Akros as a nation, which seems to have a lot of Victorian England vibes on the surface, but also has a lot of Italian sounding words I found in the kind of implied setting in the book. Yeah, and I think I think Akros, the way that I know I've played it before. Also has a has a lot of like kind of Russian imperial influences, which is not necessarily in the book, but it's not something the book doesn't support, right? And so there's, there's all these different kinds of uh, influences that allow us to reimagine even the base game, and we're kind of taking that and putting it into Russia as well. Yeah, I I think this is interesting what you say with like. Russian or Italian or because we play in very international context like this group the the games we play even outside of this podcast are with a very international and multilingual group of people and that can actually be a challenge um this yeah. kind of because languages evoke different things to different people so i think it's good to break with stereotypes also for that reason because it's if you're all, if everyone at the table is from the same culture then everyone at the same table will have the same connotations to say Italian and they will feel the same things about it but that changes drastically yeah. if one of your players is Italian right so yes absolutely and i think that like this is also something that we know can be sensitive but we and this is something that i think that Zohar and i have spoken about before which is there is a kind of thinking about ownership that we don't want to necessarily accept uncritically, which is to say, in the most recent episode, Prince, you said that Vickers was going to make spam biryani, and uh, I want to be very clear that 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 destroyed me. That did incredible amounts of psychic damage to me. But I'm in support. I don't of think. It. I, yeah, exactly. So is in support of it. That's a choice that he can make for sure. But more than that, I think we want to be. We want to remind ourselves that, like, that is the kind of choice not only that we want to, that we are okay with seeing, but we even encourage seeing, right? That it's not that only someone who is from a culture that is familiar with biryani is, is going to, in our podcast, make statements about what that is, right? And I think that is also part of, a, like, the, like, 
playing with an international audience where, sorry, an international group where we all trust each other, right? We'll say that though, while I'm personally very averse to the idea of spam biryani, it is a great joke. <laughs> it's an incredible joke. I incredible I, I listened joke. to it and I died laughing the second time. And a friend of mine uh, messaged me as soon as she heard the podcast and said nothing about the rest of it, just said spam biryani, I did a triple take. So, I mean, A plus, to be honest. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but I, I do think that this is an interesting subject, both for our listener base and our group. And there is, um, yeah, I think this is this is a sort of thing that any good group will discuss, right? You know, the what what do you, what do you call it? Cultural sensitivity is that the right word, or am I am I tripping over words? Uh, uh, I think that's, that's... Appropriation? Yeah, something, maybe something in that broad. Yeah. I think appropriation would be if Prince starts selling spam biryani in real life and becomes famous for it, and spam biryani becomes the most popular form of biryani in the world. Uh huh. I think that if would that be happens, weird. It's what we will deserve. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I think you are not wrong that it, it would be cultural appropriation, but it would also be what we deserve for permitting him to utter the phrase spam biryani, you know, without censoring it. So good. Um, but. Uh, sorry, Prince, you were going to say? Uh, no, nothing. Go on. No, I was going to say that, of course, like, there's a very, very funny meta joke here about how South Asians take their food very seriously, especially biryani, that we're talking, that we're fixating on biryani as the thing to talk about yeah. in terms of cultural respect and so on. <laughs> but um, I think this is really important I mean, because... I... Um, sorry, you were going to say? I was just going to interject that uh, I'm from Hyderabad and uh, we take our biryani even more seriously than most people, which is admittedly what everybody says about their biryani. Fair enough. Biryani is very good. Uh, uh, no, um, biryani more seriously than us. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Than yeah. me, specifically. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yes. They call um, me the biryani ustad, where I come mm-hmm. from. <laughs> yes, I, I, this can spin out forever. Um, yes, that's right. maybe, we should, maybe we should move on to the next topic. I will say, though, on, uh, on the subject of uh, cultural sensitivity, I think, like, look, mm-hmm. this is the kind of joke that it's okay to make, I mean, depending on where you're coming from, right? Like, if it comes, there's, uh, you can make this joke in one of two ways. One is a kind of ignorant kind of way where, and that could be insensitive, but the other way you can make it, and I think that's the way the prince is doing it. It's almost like an affectionate parody, right? And and that's great. Like that, that makes for a very good joke when you when you know what you're talking about and intentionally um, adding something weird to it. I think it's also metronymic of like the larger sort of problem that we were almost trying to address with when Tree and I start first started talking about like making more content for Uduasha or Aruvia, making some sort of supplement, maybe making Uruvian playbooks, and then we eventually landed on the podcast idea where. I think, like, fundamentally, the problem with how unsatisfying the Uduasha content and the treatment of Eruvia is in the Blades manual, I think fundamentally it comes down to the fact that it's very much from that outsider looking in perspective that, well, that we call Orientalism. And it's interesting because um, when we start talking about the podcast and the, and the idea of the podcast, we st- Triana, we spoke about whether or not, like, we talked about it as like the South Asian, a South Asian podcast, a brown people podcast, essentially. 
right? And then we discussed it and so like, do we actually want to just make a show where it's just a bunch of South Asians playing Blades in a very South Asian in jokey kind of way and where the assumed audience is South Asian? And like, there's different ways of talking about this kind of thing. I mean, safe space may not be inappropriate, though of course that's a very loaded term. And we thought about this, and I don't, I, I can't speak for Tree here, like, but I personally felt very kind of uncomfortable with that sort of idea, right? But at the same time, like, if the sort of problem that we're trying to address here, content-wise, is from, is an outcome of a lack of familiarity, sort of like outsiders looking in, then there's a sort of like obvious tension there of like, not making a product that's entirely insider speaking. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't necessarily have an answer there beyond that. We chose to kind of like mix. And I think it's interesting because of that. But I think it's also the sort of decision that comes with a certain degree of risk, which is not necessarily a problem. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I uh, was thinking about was precisely because we're such an international group that I wanted one of the things to be that even if I wasn't personally comfortable with going some places, that the group should be fine with it and I should be able to trust the group with that, right? And I think Spam Biryani is a nice example in that it's not really that serious, of course, but it's the kind of thing where because there is a group and because the table is comfortable with it, then I can be comfortable with it. Uh, even though I might in some other contexts uh, not even utter these words because they are blasphemy against the one true God. Um, and I think like broadly, and I just want to move to kind of like the themes of the, uh, of the podcast because we could really genuinely talk about this one thing forever, I think is how we kind of like came up with the things we wanted to see and the things we wanted to tackle, right? So like Klaus said, um, the, the, the Uduasha content was a jumping off point. But I think more broadly, uh, one of the things we decided, I think, very early on was that we wanted to see a kind of family dynamic, right? And our characters are all like kind of, related to each other and are related to the institution of the temple, right? So the, the, the Bonda family, I think, runs very strongly uh, at the core of our game. So I'm wondering, like, how did you think of each of your characters in relation to that theme? Like, how did you decide this is where my character will kind of fit in? I would like Miras to start, or Chloe to start with Miras here, if I may nominate someone. There's a few things that I wanted to address with Miras as a character, but like, thinking of family for the moment. So I am personally, well, well I suppose there's no reason not to get a bit personal. Like, um, I am one of those, uh, I'm one of the uh, many South Asians who went abroad to the West to get educated and started making a life there and I think that is an experience that sort of that 
particular kind of immigrant experience is very interesting. That's the one that I wanted to like look into with Miraz, where it's like you're from a certain place, but maybe you never fully felt that you belong there in the first place. Then you went somewhere else. And I think Miraz is far less critical than I am in real life. But you went somewhere else, and then you felt like you belonged. And then what? where are you then? Right? Like you don't fully belong in the new place. You don't fully belong in the old place. And then Miraz is a character who had to come back home to take up responsibilities that he's probably unfit for. At least as far as he's concerned, he's unfit for. And I think no one really expected him to take up the mantle. But he has to do it, right? And then how does he handle like life with his family, like with his new perspective? How does he handle life in his old town, which he never probably felt like was ever his place to begin with? That kind of thing. I think that's a very interesting and difficult immigrant experience, which I wanted to like highlight. Does that answer the question for now? Yeah, and I do want to add here that like I do not have exactly that experience, but have a similar experience, which is to say that I did go to England to uh, become educated, and then I came running back. And whether that is a good decision or not remains to be seen. And I think a lot of the way that I imagine Zajidan's relationship with Miraz, which I'm actually like very careful about in many ways, is... I think, influenced both by your and my history of that, right? Um, and I think I'm very careful to kind of say Zajidan is a good father and, you know, uh, he's much more put together than many South Asian parents are or many parents are even. And he is kind and caring, but this doesn't mean that he has not made some missteps uh, and he hasn't made... Uh, it doesn't mean that he's perfect, right? And I think that relationship between Zajizan and Miraz is something that we we really see your and my personal struggles in, which I find like very interesting. Can I propose we go on with Zajidan's brother as our next? Yes. So yeah, I'm uh, playing Abbas, Miraz's uncle. Got the most experience around the temple, and uh, is. A sort of expi of a Islamic scholar, and for this character, I guess there were like uh, two sort of things that I had in the back of my mind when Aiken's character. One was I'd read a book not too long ago on the development of science in the uh, medieval Islamic world, and I really liked that book and. And and this book had a lot of uh, excerpts from what what the scientists at the time you know uh, there were direct translations of what the scientists at the time wrote and uh, I, I I really liked the way that they were going about their way they were doing science uh, science and it's uh, it's kind of hard to explain now but a lot of the times when the, the, someone is writing a book and it's a response to something someone else had written there was this level of snarkiness because we're not talking about modern day, you know, publications and stuff, right? Someone would write something like, oh, well, such and such has written this up on this theory. I would advise him to <laughs> consider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and I don't know, there was something about just like uh, that kind of character that I really connected with. Uh, and so Abbas, 
sort of start the nucleus of us is sort of there and then as i think i've been playing him he's taken on some characteristics of my real life uncles and there's a little bit of me in there as well uh, how could there not be um but also with Abbas as a sort of counterpoint to Miraz, I think, is that uh, I'm also someone who's uh, a South Asian who's gone abroad to study and has then made a new life abroad. But um, even like while the place where I've grown up, which is Dhaka, Bangladesh, is objectively uh, a terrible place to be, I've always had uh, affection for this place and... Some someone would say a very irrational affection for the place, uh, but it's there. And the the longer that I've spent away from Dhaka, the more I've you know I I miss it. And uh, and maybe like there's, I I feel like maybe I need to perhaps uh, defend or um, like speak up for my for the place that I, where I've grown up. And a little bit of that I think is also in the bus as well. Like he he's there as an advocate for his way of life, right? Like his city, like he, he, he loves it warts and all. And you know, that, that's something that's coming from uh, my own experiences. I think one of the things I like about Abbas also is that he's, uh, he's, he's very much more comfortable, like you say, in his city compared to Miraz and uh, Joan and Vickers, because he's kind of like been, been there for so long. He's practically part of the architecture, right? And I think uh, the other three characters in uh, the crew are kind of caught between worlds and that is their challenge. Whereas for Abbas, it's like the challenge is in fact becoming more caught between the worlds because he's so comfortable in the place that he's found himself that leaving it has now become something that he he maybe needs to do, right? Uh, um, One of the things I will say is that with Abbas... uh, I'm not like a method actor or anything like that. A lot of the times I've just been winging it uh, with what he, what his opinions on things are. And so it's hard for me to say, give an exact kind of motivation uh, for something like that. But I think um, it, it is just that is I wanted to um, relay my experiences of living in Taka and feeling like this is a place that I know well, I know uh, the people there, and especially, so this is a very long time ago, but when I was uh, very, uh, until I was about 11 or 12, something like that, I lived in what was essentially a kind of gated community. So one of my relatives is in, was in the army, and because through of that connection, we were able to get a place in a place that was for uh, military officers and their relatives. But it was still connect, like connected to, it was in an odd place where it's kind of like a place for middle class families, but it's also bang in the middle of like a very working class, very like gritty part of the town with a like you know a rail line going through it, like a very like old markets that just you know a jumble of maze of streets and all that. And I would 
I guess maybe the city was safer back then, but I would just, as a child, just walk around these places pretty much by myself. I would just, like, you know, after, in the afternoon, I would just leave home. I would come back sometime in the evening, and my, like, no one in my family would question where I'd gone. I, like, I knew everyone in the neighborhood. And that is a feeling that has been missing in uh, where I live now, which is Toronto. Because just because I think of the way the city is built, it's uh, not the kind of uh, art, uh, city planning that in, in most places in the city, uh, it, not the kind of place that promotes uh, these communal ties. And yeah, I, I think I've been maybe a little subconsciously been like kind of trying to play that up as well. Like, you know, my character lives in the city. He knows everyone. He's really comfortable. Right. And Maybe maybe it's my uh, my way of getting back some of that, uh, living some of these memories. <laughs> yeah, I think that makes sense. In that case, I think maybe the next person we should uh, the next person we should go move to is Vikas, who is not from Uduasha, and uh, I don't actually know where Prince lives. I know he lives in Sweden, but I don't know where in Sweden you live, Prince. So I'm curious to know whether. The way that um, Soup is describing the uh, the way that Toronto is kind of is similar to your experience of where you are, or whether that's different. Uh, yeah, so uh, I come from a small town, and then I left. <laughs> and that's uh, I I did not have I was the kind of person who grew up and wanted to get out, right? And I'd initially planned to move further away, which has very little bearing on on Vickers as a character, really. But I feel like we have we have sort of different backgrounds, right? And I don't really recognize this sort of uh, being being part of a city is not something that I have experienced in the same way. I don't think I'm not. Um, I wanted to I wanted to leave where I grew up, but I never really had that that feeling of being entirely a city person or entirely at home in a city either. I don't think, and uh, Vickers is not very much colored by, by that. So, uh, Vickers, the reason why I'm why I'm in this role about the family ties. If we go back to the original, original question, right? Um, mm-hmm. In a different game, I uh, there was a character who had an ex-wife that became like a big NPC thing off screen, and I thought it would be funny in that game if I were to step in and and have the ex-wife be my next PC after my player was like my my character was like lost in Vice or off screen, so I decided to step in and play the ex-wife, and then that became a bit of a meme or in joke in the server I'm on, um or the server we're on I should say, and uh, yeah from there on I uh, I was like hmm maybe I should play the wife again it was I had fun with it the first time and so that's how. The Vickers concept came about, but I think Vickers is uh, totally different. I think that she is the sort of person who is comfortable in any kind of environment and aggressively adapts to her surroundings, or doesn't really adapt but thinks that she does. And I think that's where a lot of the that character comes from. So Vickers is from a noble family. She's from the the Ashcroft family of uh, of Akaros. She is a complete outsider in Uduasha and. I think a lot of the comedy comes from her being a complete outsider, and I'm trying to play off of that. But she also, uh, you know, is well-meaning and really tries to fit in. And to highlight or to look at 
where Vickers comes from and what what sort of differences are driving her is that not only is she not from Uduashi, she's also nobility. She comes from a fairly penniless family called the Ashcrofts, who are, you know, they have status and prestige in their home country, and they're desperately clinging to that status and prestige here in Uduasha. They're trying to maintain their, their power and their influence and pulling strings and so on. But I think there's definitely this interesting clash of of wills here, which is really what all the Vickers concept is about. So the Ashcrofts are, they, they used to own a fleet of ships. Now they work on a an airship in Uduasha, so they represent this kind of industrial force uh, that is casting its shadow over Uduasha and it's making a lot of people like Abbas quite uncomfortable. Um, so her father is the, the, the leader of the empire and also Miras's rival. And then she has a sister who is competing with her for the inheritance, essentially. It, this is sort of the how how that theme ties into Vickers. And the, the, the noble families of, of Akoros, where she comes from, are, for people not familiar with the setting, they are very, very big deals in Akoros. They basically own all the industries. They run everything. They're, they're basically somewhere in between noble houses and mega corporations. And so I think Vickers' storyline is not really escaping from from a culture so much as it is escaping that oppressive regime of family right she comes from a family that is like a corporation like a machine and then she's married into this messy but genuinely loving family and i think that's the interesting contrast in her storyline something that i really enjoy about vickers is that you can see all of the tension that she has uh on one side towards her sister towards her father and so on and then you can see that the way that she's integrating into uh, the Chakrabortis is, I mean, it's not easy. And, you know, there's a lot of work on all sides, but there isn't this this sense of like um, complicated suspicion and mistrust on everyone's part. Right. No, indeed. Uh, which I think there is in the Ashcrofts. Yeah. And we also have. Like we have the themes of family and we have this theme of like cultures crossing as well. So that's why I think it's it's very cool that we have this this marriage of two characters from completely different backgrounds. And there's a lot of interesting stories to tell just by how their backgrounds meet and clash. Uh, yeah, in forms absolutely. of Miras's conflict with the Ashcroft family and, and so on. I just wanted to jump in and note one of the things that I really like about how we're handling this storyline is that so far, like, you know, we have done the fish out of water stuff, but, like, it hasn't been, like, har har, she doesn't know to handle life here, har har, funny cultural misunderstandings, haha, bend it like Beckham, etc. It's something I appreciate. Yes. Yeah. And uh, to draw on real-world experiences, this is something I I am marrying into a family from a different culture than my own. So this is something that I have some real-world experience of as well. Another thing that I really like about Vickers is that the 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 genuine earnestness is, I think, something that we in the real world, or at least I have, have kind of seen that, like, there's a kind of suspicion of that. Uh, not necessarily because the person themselves doesn't mean well, but because we've kind of seen it go wrong so often, right? But because we get to be, we get to fictionalize this relationship, we don't need to involve that. So we can just 
see the earnestness itself and then think about okay what does that mean right like when someone is genuinely like interested in learning something new but is unfamiliar with that thing like what kinds of consequences do we see from that right and that is something that i think uh we don't really in the real world get to see enough of because there's always history right and by removing that history i think we get to uh we get to examine this um which i'm enjoying very much yeah there's also a world building note of that uduasha and akurosa's relationship is is complicated right this is not a this is explicitly not a world, and we've mentioned this before. It's not that Uduasha is, conquer- is colonized by the Empire, right? There is an uneasy kind of, of... Maybe an unequal power balance, but there is some sort of power balance between them. Uduasha is its own its own city, and, and Iruvia has... A, it has a consulate. It's very unclear, actually, in the... In the default world, being exactly what the relationship is, they're sort of part yeah. of the empire, but they also have a consulate and their own government. Um, yeah. So it's it's a messy relationship between the two cultures, which is something that also comes up as we world build Uduasha a fair bit. Yeah, um, jumping on that, uh, in, I was sort of thinking of it as a bit like uh, the Persian Empire in nineteenth century kind of thing, where the Qajar dynasty like so like the persia was never colonized like but the the royal family were you know in, in return for some kickbacks from european powers would essentially contract away um, bits of their economy and uh you know that's where all the trouble started um and, and I think it's a bit like, uh, I was thinking it's a bit like that, where, yeah, this is independent, it's not colonized or conquered, but there is clearly a power imbalance, and rather than resist, the powers that be in Uduasha have decided to collaborate with, uh, you know, accuracy interests, sometimes to the detriment of the uh, the actual Uduasha, the, the Iruvian people. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I think it's there's definitely a theme in Blades in the Dark in general that economics is the darkest is the darkest <laughs> art, right? It's, yeah. Uh... yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, I think we're also seeing what we really see come up in this story a lot is Akaros as a cultural hegemon, effectively. So it's not it doesn't necessarily have to influence have to conquer places to influence them and change them into a mirror of itself. Uh, right. There is there is a tension that it's. That there is the possibility that it, that Akaros is kind of doing that with Udu, Uduasha, um, of course, calling them Akaros and Uduasha as act as actors is a very like nebulous concept, because mm-hmm. we we are already seeing like that people from both sides are kind of uh, or both both cultures are kind of contributing to that process. One thing that I find really interesting in Blades in the Dark, and it's something that I would like to see explored more explicitly i think in a lot of the games that a lot of the i don't know the paratext like all the stuff that people talk about like because blades is not bigger than just the manual right it's been for five years but like one of the things that i find really interesting as an implication blades in the dark in terms of how the empire works is that unlike in the real world where okay like there was just a bit of a metaphor what what i'm Okay, so what I'm trying to get at is, unlike in the real world, um, where places like England and the Netherlands and the US now, 
essentially exert their hegemony over foreign lands and largely for economic reasons there is sort of like a rhetoric of like you know a civilizing mission right like uh back in the day it was christianity now nowadays it's democracy yes this this uh this episode has now become very very political um, and we shall keep going forward has um, now now become uh we started at orientalism in the base text yeah, um, yeah, yeah. i think uh, unavoidable we're... given what we're trying to explore in this uh yeah. in, in this campaign so mm-hmm. yeah yep but like so that's real world empires right like economic juggernauts with some sort of like veneer of some sort of like rationalization so because you know no one really wants to say we're going to go over there and we're going to suck up all their oil mm-hmm. we're going to go over there and like make them bleed for indigo that kind of thing um yeah. but i find blades really interesting because like this is a post apocalyptic setting where there's an immortal emperor who okay some people say that you know this is all propaganda etc but like there's no he's probably immortal magic probably does ex- magic exists he seems to have some sort of method of keeping the ghosts out. So Akros, his empire, it actually does have some sort of like re- actual justification that real world empires don't have. And I think that's really interesting in terms of like, what would that actually do for a world? What would that actually do for the people who are the colonizers? What would that do for an empire? What would that do for its subjects? Like this notion of like these, this... The state that's being built is the only form of like civilization that can survive, and I think that rhetoric also is really, really interestingly problematized by the fact that the manual also says that the Daggerals they have their own method of dealing with ghosts. Severosis they have ancient societies where they also know how to deal with ghosts. Uduasha is built around a gigantic flame pit that sucks up all the spirits. So even though the rhetoric there implies that, okay, the empire is the only way to live, we know that the empire is not the only way to live. And I think there's really interesting tensions that can come up politically if you like approach it with these lenses where the empire seems to have a reason to exist that real-world empires don't have. But then also at the same time, there's other ways of living that are in the base text already. Yeah, I also think we see that not only do not only do we see in the manual that there are alternative ways of dealing with ghosts other than what is said to be like the emperor's mandate effectively we've also seen that the emperor's mandate has already collapsed because in the past in the history of akaros they were able to ward off ghosts simply by his magic Uh, but now they're not able to do that anymore and they need the lightning barriers which yeah. requires an industrial system of exploitation and so on to support it. Exactly. I, I think the counterpoint to what you're saying is that, yes, they have this emperor who, who you know, provides a thing that is really necessary, arguably. But they all, that also means that the cultural hegemon provides something that is really necessary by means of extracting and controlling a viscous black liquid, which is not all that unlike the real world, right? Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. So there's metaphors and so on. But like I think there is a core of necessity or like justification that I think is really interesting to play on. Yeah. Because, of course, that is not I ultimately think... justifiable or necessary, as we mm-hmm. find out in the text. Yeah. And I think, in fact, um, because we were going through characters, so I do want to pull Emma into this. Uh, but this is such an interesting topic, so I'm going to try and tie them both together. Um, so, Emma, Joan is 
a character who is explicitly kind of running away from the things that Akaros is doing in order to like maintain its supremacy, right? So mm-hmm. she was employed by that infrastructure. Um, she was very good at that job. And then she found herself needing to leave and needing to find like a sanctuary, right? How do you think the like that kind of tension of that past interacts? Because everyone else kind of has a a somewhat like complicated relationship, which ultimately I think puts them on the side against Akaros. For Vickers, it's the fact that like her family is trying to, you know, regain its imperial status. Uh, for Miraz and Abbas, it's the fact that the temple is staunchly uh, Aruvian. But it seems like for Joan, one way or another, you can't deny that fighting ghosts is kind of a good thing. Yeah. I, I think when we first started talking about this podcast, and this this is starting with a bit of a tangent, I I was very quickly very sure that I didn't want to play someone who was from Uduasha or like had always been a part of this family uh, in the way that, for instance, Abbas is. Uh, also because I am extremely unfamiliar with most of the cultures that Uduasha is based on or inspired on. So I was like, that would not be bringing a part of me into that character. That would feel untrue somehow. Um, so I knew I was going to play someone who was more from this fictional settings, Imperial core, effectively. Um, she's from Scotland, Scotland, that's not Akros, but they, you can see and you see that those countries are very close to each other in, for instance, the fact that Duskwall was originally a Scotland, uh, a Scotlander city. And as you say, she is she is employed effectively in the most phys- most physical and most literal manifestation of the empire's uh, influence or or method of spreading influence. Uh, that being those those railways and keeping them clear of ghosts. But it turns out that that's a pretty stressful job. Um, who who could yeah. have thought, right, to fight yeah. manifestations of grief and rage of the dead? Uh, all the time when there is no sun atop a speeding rail car. Um, turns out that that kind of uh, drains you after some time. So she has to go. She has to go somewhere else. She has to. She has to stop living that particular life. And there, I think, um, she looks to. She makes. She makes the choice to look towards a different culture as a means of escape of escape or personal salvation. It's interesting that escape uh, comes up in all their characters, almost, it seems. Um, where she thinks, I'll go to this place that she, she perceives as really far away and completely unlike the, the world that I've lived in. Um, and I think she, she goes to be a religious uh, she goes into a religious uh, position, right? She, I think that she will also have thought of it as a more peaceful or spiritual place than where she was from. And then that, that I think that's a, a thing that we might see with a lot of, um, a number of, of real people in Western cultures 
that look at at other countries and think, oh, that's a more spiritual place. It's a different place. It's a place where I can live a life completely unlike the one that I'm living now. So that was a theme that was very interesting, interested in exploring. Now, of course, there's some like uh, kind of fantasy or narrative add-ons to that in uh, the actual story that we have. So, for instance, Uduasha is not a place that has ghosts where she is uh, running very, very concretely from the life with ghosts in them. And uh, we made the narrative choice to have her have a reason that another reason that Uduasha was on her radar and that this temple was on her radar is that she is very distantly and uh, very distantly related to the other, to the rest of the cast. Um, but I, I think I made, I was, I deliberately made that, made that a little bit of a tenuous connection. Because ultimately we see her running to Uduasha thinking that her life will be completely different and that she will be at peace. But once she has arrived and the campaign start, um, we see that for a very large part, none of that is really working out exactly as she had thought. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a good time to bring up like how we we kind of came up with the cult itself, right? Uh, because I think one of the things I was certainly very keen on was that uh, there should not be one single easily identifiable thing, right? Like, it's going to be a wheel that's also a snake that's also on fire, right? Maybe the snake is real, maybe it's the god, maybe it's the avatar of the god, we're not sure. And then each person in the cast has a very different relationship to that that institution, right? Um but I think Joan actually has maybe the most, I wouldn't say the most personal, but the most immediate in some ways relationship with, with the institution because Joan is actually very comfortable around the snake that is the avatar of the god um, and certainly seems to be uh, the god itself, right? But we've also been seeing that the god sometimes just does whatever it wants. Yeah, so like Joan has this very immediate kind of relationship uh, in this way but everybody does have something very different and we are seeing the way that the god is basically sometimes pushing its own agenda without necessarily uh, taking into account the things that like the characters want or its devotees want right and so far that tension hasn't necessarily bubbled up into outright conflict and we don't know if it will but that's something that I think I'm very interested in because like we said that the no we were talking about this before we were recording which is the difference between heresy and orthodoxy and how you require a heretic almost in order to be orthodox right you need someone to stand up and say the god is wrong in order for your belief in the god to be affirmed so i guess the question is where do we think our characters relationships with that institution kind of came from um and like more broadly how are we thinking about religion in Uduwasha, which I think all of us like have a different take on and that's kind of why it has like so much texture in the game. Hmm. With any uh religion, like one of there's always there's gonna be a, a diversity of opinions and I think it's really good that we are uh capturing all of that. And now I only have intimate uh, uh a relationship with one religion but uh 
this is something that like even uh in you know I think a fairly short span uh like you know of people there's a lot of uh different ways of i think living their religion right and that's something that is uh, coming across and something that I think we've all kind of uh, wanted to emphasize. And for, for Abbas, I think his way of living the precepts of his religion is more to do with his uh, you know, scholarly work. Like he, he's a kind of uh, person who thinks that the best way is to, you know, uh, to learn, to learn about the history, and have like these uh, debate. Like he's, plus it's strangely like uh, like this. Another uh, something that I uh, noticed, and I wanted to bring in this character is uh, that paradoxically both very conservative, but also uh, progressive. Where in in the sense that I think like. He he thinks that like he he like you know he's done a lot of studying right and he's 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 firmly in the belief that he's got it right, and so if people just listen to him, everything would be fine. Where I think with the uh, with Joan the the relationship is more uh, spiritual right it's it's more about uh, I think like doing the rituals and. Sorry, I'm uh, kind of. I think I lost the thread of what I was saying. Uh, that's so abbas. That's, that is, that <laughs> is so abbas. Uh, someone else jump in here. Maybe it's I, the feeling I get for like the difference between Joan and Abbas and their relationship to to the to the God is that Joan is very much there for the god specifically because she think, thinks that just holding to its precepts and focusing on uh, something that is not worldly, that is that is divine, that that will be her salvation. Whereas I see Abbas being more like being about being about the philosophy of the thing first and therefore also having maybe a bit more room to disagree with the snake. Yeah, um, yeah, that's pretty much I think what what I was uh, going for. Yeah, I, I also want to I also want to point out that our our intro says that the inhabitants are a family, a god, and the snake. So the snake and the god are not necessarily one and the same thing. In, in yep. precisely the same yep. that the f way that the family and the god have the same name, but are not necessarily the same thing. It's the Chakraborty family, and that's also the name of the deity. But there are differences here. Maybe it'll turn yes. out the snake is just some random snake. The, snake. The, the kinds of things I'm thinking about with regard to the snake do not bear going into because I will never stop. And none of it fair will enough. be canon until it appears on the, in the fair episode. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. The presence. Um, yeah. But since we're talking about our relationships to the religion, I think Miraz is interesting in this respect because he does his ambivalent... I think I think ambivalent is the kindest way to put it. Uh, he largely doesn't care about the family religion at all. He's I think he's spent most of his life trying to avoid it. He grew up in it, obviously, but like it never really particularly appealed to him. It's a little bit like being an atheist, but also God exists in your basement. Like 
that exists in your basement has to be the name of this episode, by the way. But please go on. But it's like, because God exists in your basement, maybe you don't find him particularly interesting or convincing. It's just like, yeah, snake runs around, does weird snake shit. My dad's into it. Whatever. Uh, I'm going to go (laughs) off and learn something much more interesting, like uh, mad science. Uh, which is imperial approved and so on. So now he's back though, and as far as he's concerned, the cult is just some mill around, some millstone around his neck that he has to like put up with. Well, whereas he could be doing much more interesting things. Of course, that's also complicated by the fact that he's unemployed and doesn't actually have a Sparkcraft job. Um, so he probably wouldn't be doing interesting things anyway. But we can, we well, let's just ignore that for a minute. But like, <laughs> coupled with the fact that he doesn't really care about this religion which of course like totally exists like you know the god is physically present it's not like a real world religion where he's like not convinced by the family religion but like still has to like do the job because now he's the head priest um the other thing about that is that he has an almost like petty need to still do the job to still be okay like okay i i don't want to be the high priest but i am the high priest so uh shut up uncle abbas that kind of thing and like i think there's also a degree of like resentment towards joan for clearly being the one who's like most favored by the snake whatever that would eventually become and like he has this kind of need to like show that you know he's important and he's going to be involved i'm not super sure where that's coming from um but it's there and i think like throughout all of this i have not described any sort of like religious awe or any actual desire to do good and so on. It's just like very, very petty human like um, re- relationships towards this religion, which I think is actually a fairly interesting and very commonplace and mundane way in which a lot of people perform religiosity. Yeah, and I think it's uh, also pretty interesting because it is a... Um... It is a, like such an interesting ju- juxta- juxtaposition where it seems like the god itself has chosen someone apathetic to believing in it that that this person should be the person who leads the religion and takes it forward and so on right uh so that's really like uh in some in some ways it's it's quite funny in fact i think in that case let's Let's talk more broadly about like uh, religion in Uduasha because not only do gods exist in your basement, do you also know that there are demons who uh, live in towers? Question mark. Um, this is something that like in the base game, I know Clow, you feel very strongly about because the whole thing about you know there are demons that live in the east and like they they roam the streets is like the most classic Orientalist kind of um, trope, right? And I think we didn't want to take that away in some sense because demon princes are just... like The the phrase demon prince in my mind evokes something that's very fun. But at the same time, I think we wanted to kind of really change that up. So one of the things that we did was uh, in the base book, there are four demon houses, but we created a fifth one. This was inspired, by the way, by something Emma said... um... I forget exactly, but like something about like the four pillars being like the fingers of a hand, and then why not have a fifth finger? Popularly known as a thumb, yes. Um, what is also very funny about this is that now I'm imagining a thumb, uh, which is 
not I mean, anyway I, I we don't need to go into why I find that funny you're just thinking um, about a thumb it's fine I'm just thinking about a thumb it's fine why is there an awkward pause but yeah <laughs> no sorry yeah what I was gonna say was um the the reason there was an awkward pause was that I was thinking well I came up with some of this stuff but I don't want to be like this is why I came up with it so how do we feel about like some of the ways that we've kind of rediscovered the law, right? That like in the base game, there are these uh, massive comets that have turned up somehow. And everybody knows that that happened before the immortal emperor was ever the immortal emperor. And after that happened, you know, Uduwasha came, came into being as it is known today. So uh, how are we thinking about working and also reworking um, that stuff in our game? So I think on a very basic level, it's a fun challenge. You have the parameters for the world that someone else made. And you, in a very petty way, perhaps, like, I mean, it is a bit petty. I think we have justifications for them beyond pettiness, but we don't like Uduasha as written. So I think very much there's this sense of like, we can do a better job, which uh, apologies to John Herper, if he ever ends up listening to this. But like, it's still really fun to like, um, work within the constraints of certain things, certain creative decisions that someone made, while disagreeing mm-hmm. with the overall arc of their project, and then kind of trying to do better. It's an interesting challenge. And I had fun with that. There's that basic level um, thing that was going on throughout, I think, um, the decisions of like what to keep, what to leave out. But like, so part of what I find interesting about what we did is that when you look at Uduasha as it is in the Blade Special Edition, which I think is like, um, it's got four or five districts. It's a fairly, and that fleshed out, it's a, it feels like a city that can tell like two, maybe three different kinds of stories. Whereas Duswell, there's just so many stories. Like I'm constantly coming up with like, stories that you can explore in this in this setting like you know what about Barrowcliff mafia right what about like cult assassins and so on there's so many things you can do in dustfall because it's big it's detailed but it's also got a lot of like blank space um which i don't think yeah. uduasha in the blade special edition has and i think like yeah as we are as we kind of like did our own world building we consciously or otherwise also made this big sprawling city that is too big for our current campaign. Um, and I think that's yes. fine, right? There's so many elements in there that we probably will not come across. But like one of the things that I find really interesting is that even though we are about we are a cult, um, most of our dealings so far have been with sport, with civic bureaucracy, and that kind of thing. And there's crime, but like it's a little bit it's a bit lighthearted crime, you know? There's a big mafia agency that, like, there's a big mafia group that essentially pushes drugs and so on, and that's a fairly dark theme, but it hasn't gotten dark in our story yet. Um, yeah. But there's potential there for, like, someone to play um, someone to play uh, Uduasha in a really, really gritty, dark drug dealer sort of story with, like, lots of colonialist themes and so on in our world building. But, like, there's potential there as well and i'm circling back to um the initial point of like um what we have kept from the book what i found really fascinating and also 
not very well done in the original base Uduasha is the Udu itself. This big um, burning fire at the heart, which is a cool concept. Then there's like this area around it that's like really magical and freakish and so on. And I can't really explain it, but like there was just something about the way it was written that like never really captured my heart. Because I felt right. like it was like so over the top orientalist. Um, all sorts mm-hmm. of magic, like you know, shadow. It's like you know, shadowy figures, strange sorcerers, and so on. But when we world built Uduasha out, and we added like a district that's entirely about bureaucracy, right? We have a district that's got like two different refugee communities and so on, and it becomes bigger, far bigger than um, the sort of like skull duggery European shadow place with like demon princes. Then it becomes really interesting to have the Udu, to like not change that much, to kind of like have the Udu as a district and like concentrate on the magic. Because the story that we are telling is so far removed from that core, it's really interesting to know that somewhere in the heart of the city, you still have that strange, mysterious, okay, maybe Orientalist district still there. Maybe even stranger than it appeared in the book. And I think that becomes interesting because that's not the city as a whole anymore, but like some place that should feel very weird and feral. Yeah, and I think feral is a good word there because it is. That's kind of like we 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 like the feralness of it. What we don't necessarily like is the way that that feralness is portrayed without other things existing kind of as well right but i'm curious to see to hear everyone else's thoughts on that uh because i think yeah we've all got feelings i am curious because for me the feeling of like the kind of orientalist implications of the of the Udu itself has been substantially changed even though we haven't changed it that much by changing the context of the city and making that the city itself a much more uh, a much more human place I would say. Right. Does that bring true for you? I would say definitely. Like it comes back to what um Adit was saying at the start where Uduasha now feels like a city where that is organic that you could actually expect it to it feels like a real place. It, it feels dynamic like i think we we have also tried to emphasize that is that things are on the move where i think in the uh the special edition it felt a bit static like it felt like the... and i think um that sort of does also lead into orientalism uh just more broadly where orientalist depictions of uh you know these places are as as places that are static that are unchanging like you know they've always been this way and they'll always be this way unless we do something about it but i, I think uh the world that we built here on on top of what was there is one that's more uh you know the, the internal mechanisms of Zuasha are moving things along yeah yeah yeah, I think the um, other thing that like I at least find very uh, interesting about the way that, that we're approaching some of this is that 
the the immigrant populations, which don't exist in the base book, but like we're all kind of interested in immigration as a phenomenon for one reason or another, is that because of that, that also makes the city feel very different and lived in, right? Uh, how how did the the idea of like putting these two and there's two different immigrant populations that both refugees um then there's the immigrant population of the uh the cultural hegemon which are in the imperial quarter and then there's the broader kind of like immigrants from other parts of aruvia um in the in the city how did how did that kind of like come about and like how do we how do we envision that kind of um also opening up the city let's just briefly have a note here because um we have mentioned like the two refugee populations and we have not actually featured one of them so i'll just briefly uh, yes, get, the, get the listener up to speed so there's the scovlander refugees from the war like the same situation in dustfall but i thought it was really interesting to have like the same number of scovlanders coming to Duasha or maybe even more um which i think makes a lot more sense because like oh, Uduasha didn't invade scovland so mm-hmm it would make sense for them to come to Udasha. Um, so there's that population, but also there's um, there's this place on in Eruvia on the map, on, on the base game called Ketris. And I thought it'd be really interesting to have like um, a lot of farmers and so on getting displaced from Ketris because of like uh, imperial agricultural techniques and so on. So now they're in Udasha, essentially jobless. So not really refugees, they aren't fleeing a war. They're just displaced farmers and so on. But they're in the same place as the Scovlanders, and I think that's an interesting tension to have like two large groups of people who need help, and they're very different, and they have different grievances. I think the immigrant thing also ties into what uh, what we what uh, Sop was saying before about the dynamicness of Uduasha as well, because the truth is, if we're if we're talking about this as a parallel to modern cities that we have lived in and visited and so on, right then. In re- reference to what Adil was saying before about uh, the the dynamicness of the setting, of it being a not a static and unchanging place, I think we are also talking about Uduasha as a you know a parallel to worlds that we have lived in and visited, which is a modern, you know, yeah. South Asian and modern cities that are alive and vibrant. And in the modern world, it is the case that you know. There is this. There is this amount of exchange of cultures and people moving back and forth, and very, very few cities today. I would argue almost no big cities are completely culturally homogenous. So this heterogeneity is, I think, a, a good topic to explore, and it is something we have in the setting. We have these displaced farmers. We have the um, we have the Scovland refugees, and then we also have like the rich, you know, to. Basically, we have what is what is in the parlance, right? We have both the immigrants and the expats, basically just down to how much yes. money they have. Um, and yeah. I think that's a good thing to reflect in the story because it, it makes it more contemporary. That is, it's not even that it's contemporary. It's probably to a degree always been like this, but it's a more realistic depiction of a modern city, which does, which will have both an influx of the rich and the poor. So that was what I want to say. As even as I was talking about the immigrant populations, that's when I went. Wait a second, the imperial quarter is also literally full of immigrants. We're just, we're just like so yeah. used to not thinking of expatriates as immigrants. Mm. Yeah. So um, 
yeah, that's pretty. I think like I that that's a theme that I really enjoy. Uh, speaking on that, speaking on about removals, one of the things that I was really interested in seeing, and I still am, um, and I th- well, I think we have seen it so far more or less, but like um, Uduasha in the base again, like uh, I don't know. I think now we're just kind of like uh, beating a dead horse, but like or like punching someone who's down. Um, Uduasha in the base manual, it's like it. I think it's actually explicitly homogenous. Like I think there's actually a part where it says that there's not not that many kinds of different people here, which I found yeah. very silly and I didn't like at all. And I think like we've kind of gone out of our way to like not just have we have Uduasha, then we have the people from Ketris, just to show that Uduasha is not the same as other places in Eruvia. They're different. They have their own cultures, and now they're here. There's a distinct immigrant population that's Eruvian, but not Uduasha. That's important the Skovlanders, mm-hmm. you have the Imperials, of course, who are an immigrant population. They don't really fit in. They don't really belong. They're trying to figure out how that works. But aside from that, you also have like the other people from the Empire. You have the Dagger Islanders here. So far represented via the Hive, but like there's others. Um, you have the Severosis. We've seen, we, uh, I don't know at what order we'll be uploading all of this, but the Silver Nails have appeared, the Severosis. There's Tychros is in the world building. We haven't seen them yet, but like this is really important, like having all these different cu- cultures that are in this world, in this base setting, being here in this megalopolis, right? Megapolis? Megapolis. Megapolis. Being here in megapolis. this megapolis. Yes. 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 Because why wouldn't they be? And I think that's a really um, interesting counter to like the sort of like orientalization of like places as being not changing or places yeah. as being like much less diverse over there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, again, like, you know, we have uh, a lot of historic precedent to work from for something like this, because places like uh, Delhi during the Mughal period or like in any of these other major cities were very cosmopolitan. And of course they were because it's a rich place, you know, it's it's a place where everything's happening. And so people from uh, nearby um, trees, kingdoms, whatever, will come to get a piece of the pie or come for refuge or you know, whatever it is yeah yeah and i think this is also something that we see reflected in and i'm bringing this in because it's one of the favorite things that uh i i love about our game and i just keep forgetting to like bring it up until like the very end which is we also see this diversity in the way that everybody plays roof ball Oh, yes. um, it's very clear that like it is a kind of like uh, global sport. Everybody plays it, but at the same time, everyone plays it very differently. Uh, the cultures of playing it are so different. And you know, we recently had uh, the the roofball match where like the Scovlander uh, team played uh, our team, and there was a very clear, I think, divide in many respects. Right, and I think that the diversity showing up in that is also something that, like, I find very interesting because the World Cup is going on as we speak, right? Yeah. And we see these teams play each other. Arguably, the sport is the same, but the cultures of playing the sport can be so different. I totally didn't realize we were able to bank on World Cup fever for our marketing. Oh yes, excellent. I well, you know, I, I only. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
Indeed. Come from the RuPaul's Day for the family drama. Oh man, that should really be our tagline, to be honest. <laughs> like our unofficial tagline, because that's what that's what our game is. Come for the RuPaul's Day for the family drama. Right? If I may be allowed a uh, small diversion. Uh, speaking of um, different cultures around uh, the, the people playing the same sport, uh, which is ball or soccer depending on which part of the world you're listening from uh in the world cup um on friday i went to this food court where they were showing the england versus the u.s and uh, there was i was surrounded by some u.s uh, football fans uh who um, asked some very interesting questions about the sport such as one guy going it's funny how that works that like everyone else has to use their head but one guy can use his hands like what's that about so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny stuff. how that works. Yeah, mm. yeah so very different uh, sporting cultures indeed. Yeah, I think like one of the th- reasons that I really like football in our game is that we are all like fans of sport in very different ways. I know Adiath is a football fan. I am a football adjacent fan. I'm a huge tennis fan. I watch a lot of tennis. And I don't know whether the rest of us, uh, Emma, Prince, and Zohar, whether you watch or follow, follow sport very closely, but I think the enthusiasm for roofball also comes partially from the ability to project onto this fictional Calvin Ball-esque sport our feelings for real sport, whether those are positive or negative. Yeah, so roofball, just to explain it, or... Roofball is, as you say, Calvin Ball. It's a made-up sport, and it's made up by the Blades in the Dark community. It's grown out as this kind of meme in the community, and it's uh, very fun, I think, to incorporate a sport where we can be flexible about exactly what it means and do some some sports drama. But at the same time, it kind of also is is a bit of a backdrop element, which I think adds a lot of world flavor to the world because this is something i think when you build a world you need to think about these things what do people eat what sports do they play what do they do for entertainment and in uduasha the answer is roofball as it seems to be across much of the empire it sort of seems to be the national sport of this setting or the, not the natural sport the global sport of this setting yeah which makes sense because mostly everyone lives in crowded cities so it's the sport that has developed right and uh, of course yeah. Uh, yeah. with the themes that we've been exploring here like uh, a lot of the political uh, social movements are going to be around uh, popular culture and the popular culture of Duasha and, uh, you know, and I guess uh, the broader uh, world of Plays in the Dark, that's uh, Roofball is a, is a prominent feature in the popular culture. So it it is yeah. Yeah, it's definitely going to come up with uh, and uh, waves are made in the in the social fabric. So. Sports is a form of identity, and I think identity is something that this game is exploring. So in that sense, I think it's quite on point. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And we did also say uh, that, in fact, Miraz and Vickers met playing roofball, right? So like, yeah. it's also part of their like uh, the backstory of their relationship. Yeah. This is funny because I am not a sporty person in any shape, way, or form. I think all sports should be taken out back and shot. Uh, uh-huh. What about the noble sport of shooting sports out back? Uh-huh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for me, I am probably the only person 
from a non from a non former English or English country that understands cricket. I think you're the only <laughs> one, and I quite enjoy it. But, but it, is, it otherwise seems to be exclusive to to former formerly British Empire countries. I, I mean, the Dutch do play in the Cricket World Cup. Uh, oh, they quite do. Often, I didn't fact. know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you uh, I don't know if Emma it? knows this, but <laughs> yeah, is this the game where you, you where you grab ostriches by their feet, stretch them out, and use them to hit hedgehogs that are curled up into balls? Right? No, that's croquet with an O. <laughs> oh, I <was> <laughs> I'm sorry. For a moment, I was like, "Is she making a really complicated joke?" And then I realized, no, that's croquet. <laughs> Oh, so I, 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 I mean, I, I was meaning to make an Alice in Wonderland joke, but now it, it seems to have gone away, gotten away from me. <laughs> Just like the hedgehog. I believe, in fact, oh, one of the no. Dutch cricket players holds some kind of international record. I would not be able to tell you. Now you mention it, I, I probably have heard of that, yeah. This I'm was, not like a super fan of it or yeah, anything, this but I have watched. a question for Tree, who I yeah. think would be more informed. Like, am, am, am I right? I think I think someone in the Netherlands uh, cricket team has some kind of, like, quite an impressive uh, international or record for probably, like, the T20 format of the game. Not important. Just thought I'd point it. Just, just thought I'd, just the thought men's, I'd point it. Sorry, I'm looking at this now. ODI records. Um, the men's Netherlands cricket team has scored the highest team to total of 315 for eight versus Bermuda. Well, and yeah, there you go. Like uh... I don't know if this is is this Damn. is this true? The men's Netherlands cricket team player Wesley Baresi holds the record of highest individual score. But is this for the Netherlands? Listen, I'm going to delete all of this. Highest... Yeah, that's fine. Uh, yes. Oh no! Yeah, exactly. Like we I have don't know which topic. Topic. I just, I just want <laughs> We to, have not very far off topic. I just wanted <laughs> to, to make this the point that the Netherlands are a powerhouse in uh, international cricket. Uh -huh. That's 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 fair. Okay. Yeah. So there is one country that has not been colonized by Britain, but is good at cricket. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> exactly <laughs> one, by the way. <laughs> Excellent. Um, the reason I, but I think one of the things that I'm really interested in is is that even though I do not participate in sports culture whatsoever um i grew up in a very very sporty family and bangladesh is despite having next to no presence in football um in any sort of like competitive or international scene let is pretty football crazy and the whole argentina versus brazil thing is huge in bangladesh there's a particular play um part of bangladesh called brown barrio where there's fairly regularly someone gets killed for supporting the wrong team during the world cup it's a whole thing there's clashes and i think like that sort of like fervor makes um any sort of sport super interesting because sports is politics sports is culture like you know football ultras and the and the right wing that's something i'm interested in and so you can never really ignore sport in any sort of a fictional setting and i think there's also something Interesting was a personal challenge of like playing someone who's notionally interested, really, really interested in the sport as someone who is not sporty at all. So there's that as well. Yeah, and I, I, we, we have in fact like introduced other sports as well, right? Like, so we know, for example, that there is hang gliding mm -hmm. is one of the big sports in Uduasha, which is much more local. Um, I certainly wrote something that I cannot recall 
exactly what it is now but there was a sport that was like capture the flag but with candles i want to say yes yeah uh uh, i've just had an idea for a sport because uduash's got these uh steep uh slopes right and um about a sport where that's about racing mountain goats downhill (laughs) and in the end you just in fact roast goat around the udu in fact, I have found this. It is Capture the Flag with candles, but also I have just seen this message in our Discord chat of Prince saying, I'm tempted to have my vice be cricket for some godforsaken reason. So, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. Like, it was very early on in the campaign when yeah. we decided that like sport was going to appear. Oh, God. Ariat, are, your, are the goats from, that compete in your, um, your invention called Gavin the Goats? Sorry? Are they called oh, Gavin yes. Goats? I may uh-huh. be saying this wrong, but I, I, I expect Finns will at least get this. Yes, yes. <laughs> Burning goats. It yeah. it's our it's apparently become our thing now. What? What? Um, I'm, I'm, the internet is excited. I'm not familiar with this. <laughs> for for those not familiar with it, Sweden has for 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 like okay, this is another tangent. We'll probably edit this out, but Sweden has for the past 200, 150 years, way far back had a tradition of building gigantic straw goats every Christmas. Oh. And because they are gigantic goats made of straw, they tend to burn down. Mm. And one city in particular <laughs> is famous for having arson as a Christmas tradition because it happens virtually every year. I definitely clear, this is... am not editing this out. This is crucial information. <laughs> yes. And to be clear, this is not like a Guy Fawkes thing. The goat is not supposed to burn. It is supposed to be up as a decoration. And almost every year it burns down. And it's a whole thing. There are betting markets on how long it will survive. It's... Uh, Oh yeah, God. it's uh, a thing that Sweden has gotten internationally famous for. We have we have our annual <laughs> Christmas arson that is entirely illegal and not supposed to happen, but it happens anyway. Well, I'll be looking forward to that uh, about a month from now. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll yep. keep an eye out on the. Yeah, I'm going to keep an eye out. <laughs> yes, yeah, and, yeah. and yeah, yeah again, it, this is not a planned thing. No one knows when it will happen. It's just it's a giant goat made of straw. It's incredibly flammable. So. <laughs> Just going to subscribe to. It's like some guy. Yeah. Oh my god. (laughs) Subscribe to Swedish goat burning as a topic on Google. Very good. Yes. Mm -hmm. Great. I think that we've mostly covered everything we wanted to cover. There's some stuff we didn't, but that was always going to be the case. You know, Uh, we didn't quite get to. The science in Uduwasha, and we didn't quite get to um, how we were thinking about the politics of revolution and transformation. Um, maybe we could do that another day because I did enjoy this chat. So maybe like once we're deeper in the campaign and we found out some more stuff about our game, you know, that might be something that like we could uh, explore. But I think for now, um, this seems like a good place to call it, unless anyone disagrees. No. I think no, we could no, no. occasionally have like mm-hmm. state of the podcast or like a hangout or like a discussion sort of thing, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's a good idea. Yeah. But uh, for now, I don't think I've got anything else um, to add. Yeah. So in that case, um, in the spirit of our collaboration, um, I'm going to ask each person to name one thing that they like about our world that someone else introduced. And uh, I'm going to nominate Emma to go first because she is at the top of the Discord chat list. 
but it's been discussed. But I, I absolutely love one. And it's incomprehensible. In incomprehensible research. Nice. Yeah. Uh, it is also one of my favorite things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Clow? I had thought of an answer to this, but then I got distracted by the Gaffley quote. Um, <laughs> actually, come back to me. I'm trying to remember what it was I was going to say. Sure, no worries. Prince? Yeah, so question is, what a favorite thing about the setting that we have come up with? That someone, yeah, that someone else has come up with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, the, uh, the, the favorite thing, honestly, goes very far back to just when we started this, and it's the sheer verticality of Uduasha. The fact that the city is a funnel around the, the well in the middle. I forget who came up with that idea, but it has lended so much more weight to Roofball as a concept and to Vickers as a thing. Like, the fact that I have a character who runs around on rooftops for fun in this, like, city of sheer drops. I really enjoy that aspect. And it makes the city very dramatic that we have all of these, like, places where people can fall very far indeed. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's very cool. My favorite thing, which I think Zoheb said uh, in, like, episode one, and, you know, I always keep going back to this, is that there's a massive mirror that reflects firelight onto the uh, onto the city, and that's how Uduasha simulates day and night. I think it is such a mad idea, and it makes so much sense as a kind of thing that like someone would come up with because they're like, well, there is no sun, but we have this massive, you know, column of fire. Maybe we could make something with that. And I think it like informs a lot of the way that I think about uh, the way the city looks, which I really enjoy. Um, and lastly, so uh, I think like one of my favorite things has actually been some of the NPCs, and I particularly liked uh, Abbas's interactions with uh, Zajitan. I I really felt like uh, the the younger brother um, <laughs> in in those conversations. Um, I think those were pretty. Um, oh, it felt genuine. Um, so thanks for that, Tree. I have a lot of experience being an older brother, for what it's worth. <laughs> All right. Um, I have one other favorite thing, which is um, silly, but I often like, think of the name Bahadur Badur, and I chuckle to myself. It's it's an incredible name. <laughs> we should have that guy up soon. Like... Yeah, we should we, we should we should bring him on screen. Um, uh, I, I can't amazing. I can't get it out of my head. I'll be making coffee and then I'll think of Bahadur Badur and I'll just snicker to myself. Yeah, I'm ready to yeah. answer my answer the question. So my Excellent. favorite thing, um, I think it's probably a tie between. I think it was Emma who suggested the waxwork golems. Or was that like everyone running with that idea and coming up with that? So that's definitely up there. But I definitely know that it was Adiyat who came up with my other favorite thing, which is the two completely at-war organizations that are, one, trying to preserve Udaput and its cultural heritage in the most militant and mindless like homeowners association way possible. And the other is a real estate uh ugly progress for the sake of ugly progress um uh organization like which uh is very similar to a certain organization that i will not name because 
uh, it is possible that something bad might happen to me if I do, but like, haha, it's a good joke for oh everyone who knows what it is. Haha. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Haha. And it, um, I, I, I didn't say it was a reference to any anything. Any, anyone could have that. No, name. no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone could have that name. Uh, any any resemblance in this uh, film to people, persons living or dead, is completely coincidental. Mm-hmm. Uh, no offense is intended to any community. <laughs> Uh, in the uh, subject matter of this film. Yes. Or to any brave bats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or to any brave bats, correct. Uh, Incredible. Yep. Uh, then I think on that note, um, we can end our world-building podcast. Uh, I'm not surprised that it ran on a bit longer than we thought it would. I think that was always a risk. Um, but nonetheless, hopefully see you for our next episode. Until then, we're desperate tune. And, you know, goodbye. And so blows out our brief candle. I named the disciples of the ceaseless temple thus, with both their given names and taken. Saumitri, called Tree. Zoheb, called Klau. Prince, Emma. And Adyat, called Soap. Intro music, Jalandahar by Kevin McLeod. Outro music in Kiravani Ragam by Yusri Nivas. Blades in the Dark by John Harper and Evil Hat Productions. Iruvian Playbooks by Johnstone Metzger. Follow us at Desperate Attune on Twitter or email us at desperateattune at gmail.com. Support us at ko-fi.com slash desperate attune.